Welcome to All Write in Sin City, a podcast about writers and writing in the Windsor, Detroit region. Your podcasters today are Irene Moore Davis, author, educator, and local historian, Sarah Jarvis, former bookseller, publishing rep, and literary festival chair, and me, Kim Conklin, Windsor based writer and filmmaker. Our guest today is Casey Plett. Casey Plett is the author of A Dream of a Woman, Little Fish, and A Safe Girl to Love, the co-editor of Meanwhile Elsewhere, Science Fiction and Fantasy from Transgender Writers, and the publisher of Little Puss Press. She has written for the New York Times, Harper's Bazaar, The Guardian, The Globe and Mail, Sweeney's Internet Tendency, Winnipeg Free Press, and other publications. A winner of the Amazon First Novel Award and the Firecracker Award for Fiction, and a two-time winner of the Lambda Literary Award. Her work has also been nominated for the Scotiabank Giller Prize, and she's also served as the head of the jury for that prize as well. On Community is the latest in the Field Notes series published by Bibloasis and was released in 2023. Welcome, Casey. Hello, it's good to be here. Thank you so much for having me. It's our pleasure. You're an award-winning fiction writer, and this is a new foray into nonfiction, although I know you've written a lot of nonfiction. Did you write this concurrently with other work, or did you have to find a different approach to writing this way? Um, I definitely didn't write this concurrently with anything else. Um, it... Um, there were some things that were similar, um, the kind of like brainstorming part of things, like kind of like jotting stuff down that was eventually going to kind of cohere and like having fragments and that sort of thing. But of course, being nonfiction, there was something really different as well, which is that I think I felt I had like I had to be more careful about what I was writing. I think when I wrote fiction, I felt very much more like uh, I felt a little free to be a little messier. I feel a little free to be like, you know, it's it's okay if I don't get this. It's okay if like no one else gets this. Um, whereas nonfiction, I was like, oh, I really got to make sure that like I'm saying something that I believe is true that I can sort of like take to the pearly gates and be like, yes, I believe this. I think this is the correct way to look at look at things. Whereas in fiction, you just have to make sure the character is believed. That's true. You just have to make sure the character is uh, what what you're saying is true to them. Um, so it sort of felt like a bigger a bigger lift in a lot of ways. You draw on the opinions of various other writers for this work. Did you uh-huh. enjoy the research for this project? Is that something that you usually combine with your writing in different ways? It's not something I usually combine, no. Um, and, uh, and it was kind of fun, you know, it gave me an excuse to read stuff that I've been, that I've been wanting to read for a long time and never, never got around to. Uh, the one difficult thing was that I at some point had to go like, okay, I won't be able to get to this book. I won't be able to get to this book. Otherwise, I just will never, will never finish it. In On Community, the tone of writing is conversational, informal, and as mentioned, with very often personal insights. How did you and your editor, Dan Wells, come to this approach? I always sort of knew it would be like that. Um, I drew a lot of inspiration from other writers who had twin sort of personal essay memoir writing with a lot of sort of like deep research and social criticism. So two ones that immediately come to mind are Times Square Red, Times Square Blue by Samuel Blaney, and then Harlem is Nowhere, A Journey to the Mecca of Black America. Um, by Sharifa Road Pitts. Um, both of those books are very much like there's a lot of research involved, there's a lot of reading involved, but they're also the authors themselves are so present in the text and the things that they're seeing, experiencing, and feeling are also so much there. 
Um, and I think when I was younger, I might have thought like when I read that kind of writing, I was like, oh, you got to be, you know, they probably like, you know, like research something for decades and decades or something. Um, and I think at some point I realized, oh, I can, I can give it, I can give a crack at this kind of thing too. I can, I can give it a shot as well. Yeah. You draw on much of your own experience of community throughout this extended essay. As much as you'd like to share, why was it important to integrate that? I'm not sure it would have felt true otherwise. I think I'm very interested in one of the best, one of the most moving feedback I got to this, uh, a draft of this book, is that a friend said, you know, I found myself sort of stress testing your arguments against communities of my own, against communities that I live in. I tried to see like, well, is what is this is this true? And she's like, and I and I felt like it was. I would feel like I, um, it would ring true for my own communities. So I tried really hard to, to every step along the way to be like, well, is this actually true for the communities that I live in? And I have moved around a lot of. I've sort of moved in and out. Have moved in and out within a lot of different communities in my life. And I would think like, well, does this actually feel like? Does it sort of pass the smell test? Uh, and there's lots of stuff I cut from the book, actually, that I would say didn't end up passing the smell test, which I would then eventually go like, you know, I actually don't think this is right. I actually don't think this is this is, this is universally true. I have to cut it. Um, so I always sort of knew that personal stuff would be involved there. Although I think a lot of my, a lot of my people who gave feedback and editors sort of pushed me to include more. Um, earlier drafts of this book, there were were a lot more like research heavy and a lot more like this guy says this and this guy says this, um, and some people pushed me to add in more more personal stuff where in sections where they weren't so. In the short interlude section of the essay, you write, "Much is revealed when a community asks what it does not want to look at. You look at the positives and negatives of a community in many thoughtful ways. Why was that important to bring to our attention?" Um, it was. It, I'm glad you asked that. It was a big kernel of the book, honestly. I think that I part of what drove me to start writing this book was thinking about how much I didn't want to think about community, about how much that the concept sort of like gave me the heebie-jeebies. Um, and I found myself being somewhat cynical or nihilistic about community, having seen how it can go wrong in so many ways, and having seen how it can like punish individuals and there's groupthink and there's shunning and there's just like casting people out. Um, and so I would have felt very cynical about it, but still, of course, I mean, like we all have to live in communities. We all, you know, you kind of don't think, you, I don't think you kind of get to opt out of that. And then in the first year of the pandemic, you know, that became really, really apparent. Like it's, I can't ignore this anymore. Like it's obviously, it's like obviously a part of my life and it's obviously necessary in some way. And so I felt like I wanted to unpick that knot. And so it always felt very important to me to talk about how community can be really bad and community can be really toxic and community can be really harmful and painful and like really cruel, um, but it's necessary anyway and we can't give up on it. That's really honestly the driving sort of like um, dual reality. I think that drove me to write this book. Like I know all the ways in which community can really, really mess a lot of stuff up. And yet I don't think we can give up on it. You know that there's a difference between networking and community building. What is the difference, do you think? And how does that impact writers in particular? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, someone told me once, I forget who, that like networking is transactional and community doesn't have to be. Um, 
so in networking, it's sort of like, oh, I'm doing this for this person because I know I'm going to get something else. I'm like literally entering into this action interaction because I know that I'm going to have to make some sort of like trade of some kind for my benefit. Whereas community, I think it, you know, it can be transactional. You can give things and get things, but in community, you enter into these things without necessarily um, those transactional expectations. So for writers, I think there's something really key where like, you know, I think I've seen like writers go to events or uh, build relationships with kinds of people for networking purposes, simply because like, I want to get something from this person, which, you know, is a little, uh, I mean, it has to happen sometimes in life, but it's not, that doesn't feel particularly healthy. That doesn't feel particularly like the kind of life that I want to lead. Um, and I think there's something more to the idea of like, um, writers entering into those kinds of spaces or doing kinds of things out of an idea of community. Like I'm only doing this because I think it's kind of like the right thing to do, or because I think it's kind of like, cool, we can do something together. And like, maybe there'll be something that comes out of this that benefits you later on down the line. But if it doesn't, that's okay too. That's not why I'm doing this. So I forget who told me that. I wish I could remember who, but it was very big for me when someone made that articulation. That's really good distinction. And I'd like to, take that and also go back to something that you were also saying there is uh, a largely affectionate reference to other Mennonite writers and you and they were even portrayed in the recent feature in the Globe and Mail as both insiders and outliers of the Mennonite community are outsiders seeking to find out what community means from those who had to leave a certain community it's kind of ironic no um I suppose so. I think there's lots of people too who live within those communities who still somewhat feel like outsiders or don't. Um, that's something that I, I, I um, that Dan Wells actually asked me to think about a lot. The difference between the feeling of belonging, like do I feel like I belong to a community or not? And then the actual actions of community, like are people in my community taking care of me? Am I doing things to people in my community? That feeling of belonging and then the actual actions those are kind of separate things. And they, they have a symbiosis and they can connect with each other, but sometimes they're different, you know? Um, but the Mennonite writer thing, um, I would sort of wonder if lots of writers who come from these kinds of specific communities are usually sort of by definition an outsider in a way, because they're sort of observing things and they often leave and come back in their communities or they're exiled from their communities or they just like, they have a certain sort of like lens on their community within the wider world. I think it's like a very just common thing for writers in particular, probably. So reading is such a personal activity. And yet, as you note, Casey, we are a reading public. What kind of public did you have in mind as you wrote this essay? Yeah, gosh, um, I don't know. I, I think, um, I guess you could say like all the communities that I'm part of, so that's fine. Um, probably the biggest thing I thought of is that especially when I was writing about real people um, who are like in my life or people who I've interacted with or people who I've had some sort of personal, I would think, okay, like if they read this, would they think this is fair? They might not have the same lens on things that I do. They might not have the same uh, conclusion, but like if they read this, would they feel... Um, put out or cheated or like I, you know, kind of like alive it over some truths. So I think I was thinking of those people a lot. And I tried to kind of like hold that up as like um 
Like if you're a stick, would they feel this is fair? In one of the footnotes in the book, you have a very telling comment. You talk about how you are consistently intrigued, how some attempts at building community alchemically catch fire and some never catch, never gather a spark. That's certainly a conundrum for any of anyone who's ever produced a literary event. Um, why do you think that is so challenging? What is what is the, the challenge that we all face? Yeah, I don't know. I um, I was definitely thinking of like my time throwing literary events when I wrote that for sure. Um, and sometimes you can put like all your resources into stuff and you're like, yeah, I'm like, okay, this is going to be good and we're going to do it and it's going to, okay, like it was all coming together. And then, you know, four people show up and are bored and leave and you're like, okay, well, <laughs> maybe not. And then something's like, ah, whatever, this will be a tiny thing. Like, I'm not going to put that much work onto it. And then something like some sort of like beautiful serendipity happens. Um, and I, I don't know if I have an answer, you know? I do think there's probably an element of serendipity and chaos where like, um, there maybe isn't an answer. Um, but yeah, I, I, I would welcome thoughts. Anyone have the answer, email me. We don't have the answers either. <laughs> I wish we did. Oh my goodness. Um, you note that in any community, but in particular the queer and trans communities, there is a danger in writing what we need to write. So how do we keep on writing what we need to write, as you say, and still find a safe space, do you think? I think I've always been at the, at the idea that writing what you need to write kind of comes first with the stipulation that writing isn't publishing. You know, you can write something and then think like, okay, like, what do I want to do with this? And then like, oh, okay, maybe, maybe it's a different idea, maybe a different goal. I think there's lots of honor in writing something and then putting it in a drawer for a decade. You know, I think that's fine. Um, I always tell my students this too, like, no one's ever going to make you publish anything. No one's ever going to like drag something off of your computer and be like, hack into your passwords and like, you know, like, yeah, sorry, it's public now. Um, so. I think there's something about um, obeying that need above all else. But again, writing isn't publishing and they can be two separate sort of like uh, decisions. You also talk about community involving compassion, which is not finite, as you say. Yeah. And yet later mentioned that community building is awkward uh, and not exactly sexy. So how do you think that also translates? to the writing life. There's like, I think, uh, because of how much the word community is, is loaded with sort of like panacea, like, oh, so we'll fix everything, community is everything, you know, and it's like it's sold to us and it's this buzzword and you see it in corporations trying to sell us things and you see it in like community um, organizing and like social justice and political things trying to like, oh, this community, this community, like, we're doing this for the community, or like, this is for community, we're doing this for, you know, like, it's it's used so often. Um, and so I think that there is, a lot of times our expectations are dashed because it turns out that, like, a lot of good community building, like, is boring or awkward or, like, yeah, like, not exactly sexy. It's, like, very sort of, like, plain and it's very um, workman-like, perhaps, if I can use that word. Um, and so I think that like, there's like a tempering of expectations um, grounded in some sort of more like uh, 
mundane reality to think about what community. So what are you writing now? What are you working on? Not nonfiction. I'm done with true things for a while. No more opinions. I don't want to have opinions for a while. Down with opinions. Uh, I have a novel that I'm trying to trying to poke at, so we'll see. Well, before you totally give up on opinions, would you like to read some of your work for us? <laughs> <laughs> sure, yeah, sure thing. I'll, I'll read a chapter on compassion. Thank you. Yeah. Morgan and Paige once said, pay attention when people invite you to turn off your compassion. It happens all the time, but compassion isn't actually a finite resource. And I think about that all the time. Money is a finite resource. Time is a finite resource. Emotional energy, which is different from compassion, is definitely a finite resource. But compassion? No, Morgan's right. I used to hear in my circles, in the wake of someone being a shitty human, that person is garbage. I wouldn't piss on him if he was on fire. Usually the person in question had done something shitty, indeed. But rarely had this person done something so egregious as to warrant synonymity with literal trash. Yet I would hear this often, and sometimes I happily returned the shit-talking. When I did, I could see a fire grow with fuel. Like, say, I did that night in high school, when after a night, I started complaining. I pulled up my keyboard and wrote to my friend A. To withhold compassion, especially on a community level, even when it seems as if there's plenty of reason, it's amazing how easy it is to do. Pay attention when you're asked to do it. The idea of compassion as not being finite has helped me immensely. The key thing to unpick here, I think, is the difference between emotional energy and compassion. Emotional energy involves things you can't do forever or for just anyone, even if you'd like to. E.g., you can talk for hours with a friend going through a hard time, but can you do it deep into the night or with multiple friends every day or after coming home from a chaotic day at work or when a stranger accosts you in the bar or the train? Sometimes, sure. Pervasively? Unlikely. Anyway, the questions of emotional energy, it's all the stuff of the hard questions of being a decent, stable human. Compassion is a little different, though. I'm not sure you can run out of it in that way. I think it might be counterproductive to hoard it. When I encountered Morgan's words here, I was living in Windsor, and I was often angry at a certain housemate. I was also often angry at my ex-girlfriend with whom that years-long breakup took place. I was also angry at the literary industry I was working in, whose values did not always line up with mine. And I was angry at certain Mennonites who were clinging to transphobia in a manner that affected my personal life. I had good reason to be angry in all these cases, and I did not owe everyone in the equations my emotional energy or my time. But it didn't do anything for me in the most literal manner to not have compassion. It didn't cost me my dignity or self-respect to extend compassion, the way it might have, say, to extend emotional energy or time. Opening myself to compassion while maintaining boundaries in such cases actually helped me unstick myself from cycles of anger and move on. I'll end there. Casey Platt, thank you for being part of our community and sharing these wonderful thoughts with us today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me here. I really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. Look for more episodes of All Right in Sin City wherever you listen to podcasts. Or check out our website, allrightinsincity.com. For information and announcements of new podcasts, sign up to our email list or follow us on Facebook and Twitter.